Pay a visit to your local fishmonger or fish counter at your grocery store and you are seeing the end result of commercial fishing. As discussed a few episodes earlier, some of those selections might be aquaculture, but the snapper and pompano and king crab are wild caught. Today's episode is a look into the commercial side of fishing and also wonders which does more harm to fishing, commercial or recreational. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 129. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. My cookbook, Cooking for Comfort, is available on Amazon or available through the link on my blog post, culinarylibertarian.com slash cookingforcomfort. From there, you can order the book, read a PDF of the introduction, and check out the reader-slash-cook-submitted photos of dishes they've made. And currently, the B-Stroganoff is the easy winner in reader favorites, or at least reader-made. I assume they're the favorites, too. To get the most flavor out of your cooking, you need good fat. Head over to culinarylibertarian.com slash getfat and order the best fat for your cooking and for your flavor. That's culinarylibertarian.com slash getfat. My guest today is Matt McCrellis, co-owner of Southern Seafood in Tallahassee, Florida. I've asked Matt on to discuss commercial fishing as he's familiar with it. Now, I did a a word interview, like an old-timey magazine interview with Matt, uh, which I will link to on the show notes page. But this is a deeper dive into the specifics of commercial fishing. Uh, I did catch Matt at work. So there are some sounds and distractions of the workplace between phone calls and the scooping of ice and paper shredders. You can hear everything. It's just audio atmosphere. Hello, Matt. Thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. How are you doing today, Dan? I'm doing well. It's been a while since I've seen you face-to-face, I think. It has been, well, the 10 more, well, gosh, I can't think about how long. It's been 20 years, probably. Is that really true? Really? Holy really? Crap. Wow. <laughs> how long have you been you work at the Governor's Club? Oh, 9-11. 9-11. Okay. Oh, two. Yep. And before wow. that. 20 so. years. Yeah, 20 years. Holy crap. Good God. Yeah. Yeah. Getting old. It's not good to remember these things. That's all right. It's not the worst thing in the world. No, it's not the worst thing in the world. Uh, I've invited you on today to talk fish and fishing. Now, I recently published an episode on aquaculture. Uh, I want to talk to you today about commercial fishing from your view, because, of course, who else could you give? Uh, Before we get into that part, just give us uh, a little bit of your background in in what you do and what your business is, so the listener has some idea what's uh, what's going on. All right, we're a retail and wholesale kind of hybrid market in in, uh, 
the Panhandle area of Florida, Tallahassee to be exact. And uh, our primary focus is um, distributing seafood to restaurants and then to the, the general public as well. So we're primary sourcers and also secondary sources of local and uh, whatever fresh in season seafood there is around the world. So it's a worldwide market now. We bring in things from all over the world and and uh, focus on uh, what, what kind of feature the local products that we have here in the north part of Florida. Could you clarify what it means to be a primary source and a secondary source? I think that might be plain, but let's just get clarification. Well, primary, you actually produce the product or somebody that works for you produces the product that you sell. And so we have boats that uh, we, we sponsor so to speak, that uh, our fishermen and uh, they they will harvest the product that we we sell here in the market, and uh, that becomes a that makes us a primary source of that product. Um, a secondary source would be buy, obviously buying from somebody who is a primary source of the product. And and in this industry, you might be second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth all the way down the line before it finally gets to you. But the the higher higher up you are on that that ladder, the the more opportunities you have to make money because you don't having to mark it up and it's not it's not being marked up all the way down the chain so i would think also the closer you are to first the fewer hands have touched it the longer and well except for frozen but even in there there's there's hassle problems of, of of how it's being handled but the closer it is to one the fresher your product is going to be all things being equal yep just like anything else in the world chain of custody is important and, and the fewer hands that are involved in that chain of custody, it's the better for everybody involved. For so. you know, profit, but also for quality of fish. Uh, I want to start with the experience of walking into a fishmonger, which is what your store is. You go in and here's fish. So you walk in, there's a lot of fish. There's actual fish, there's shellfish, there's lobsters, there's pretty much everything you want, fresh or frozen. In some cases, here's smoked fish dip, which we still think about. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, may, what? Yeah, I would like that. My wife would like that. Yeah. What yeah, right. may not be obvious to most people is that some portion of what's in those cases is an aquaculture product. That's correct. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of ironic that um, we get grief because we sell things that have been farm raised. But in this, the world we live in, if, if we can't live with the idea that some, some things can be farm raised and still be a, a quality product, then we're going to struggle going forward. We're all going to be eating tofu or something because it is in order to maintain current uh, relevance in a lot of these markets, you're going to have to have a farm raised product. The nice thing is though, that they have farm raised things much better now than when you and I were first starting out in this whole, this whole, uh, market the uh industry the farm raising was just a, just you didn't go close to that because of the, the nature of the pra and the practices of farm raising were horrible but the market has driven it to where people have forced mark uh, farms to be much cleaner and much more presentable and all their practices much more ethical and and uh, uh better shape they it's a, it's a much better product than it was you know 20 30 years ago Chilean salmon used to be the, the, the one that everybody would hammer on, and, and now it's tilapia and, and swai, and it is the favorite uh, children of the, of the 
bashers of the farms, but uh, yeah. even those items are, are done in an all natural process now. And um, those things can be handled much, much better. And it's the, the, the things that were, you know, concerning to the consumer have been, you know, altered or changed completely or eliminated completely. I remember getting swine. I remember thinking very little of it. Yeah. It's, it, it has its function. It, you know, I, I think it's what's one thing that's neat about seafood is, is that for better or for worse, for your, your health and in consuming some of those farm-raised products like swai, uh, there's something for everyone. If uh, the lower, you know, if you don't have a lot of money but still want to eat a, you know, a, a seafood product, there's something there. And if you have all the money in the world, we got something for you too. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the – even even with the changes in in the market and the expectation and the demand and the want for better, do people still make a faith when they walk in and they say, "I want this fish"? Do do, do they still have a visible opinion about farm raised? And are you obligated to tell them this is farm raised or wild caught? Yes, uh, yes to the answer. Obligated. We make no we don't make no secrets as to what we're selling. I, I'm not in the business of trying to, to get over on somebody. Um, but we do source only the best items that are farm-raised or the best uh, farm-raised items of any specific species. Um, each species has a, 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 you know, a good, better, and best uh, variety of farm-raised product and uh, of those items that are farm-raised. And we only source the best ones. We don't try to, to get over on anybody. We're very upfront. Now to answer your question, whether or not they turn their nose up to it. Yeah. Yeah. Some of them do. And I, and I asked those, I asked some of those people very kindly, I said, do you buy farm raised vegetables? You know, <laughs> so, and I, I, I don't, I've always, I've been, I've been concerned why people have such a phobia of eating a farm raised product. And it's, it's marketing. It's, you know, it's marketing the, the wild industry salmon is the one that's the easiest one to relate to because that's, an item that we're all pretty familiar with, but the, the wild industry of Alaska, you know, they back about 25 years ago made a huge push because they found their product becoming irrelevant because chili came into the market with this inexpensive product and it was good. It was a good product. And the, and the wild fishermen had to start figuring out a way to market this product. And in consequence, they, they lambasted the farmer's product and it made the farmer's product, you know, get better. So that's a good, that was a good consequence of it. But, uh, but it also drove the, the market to wild Alaskan salmon and they did a wonderful job. Now their product is fantastic. There's no doubt about it, but is it as good as the market has dictated? Well, that's a consumer's choice, right? They, they, they can decide that, but um, it's been interesting. I, I, I always wonder why people just turn a nose up. I mean, as soon as you say, do you have any wild salmon? They might be 20 below and blowing wind in Alaska and they expect people to have wild salmon in their market. I'm like, no, but we have this wonderful, all natural organic farm raised salmon from wherever it might be. And they'll be like, nah, I don't want that. I'm like, wait a minute, but you don't eat vegetables. You know I mean? I don't know. It's just me. Well, I, I think there's probably a lot of reasons to that. And some of the things I uncovered in the aquaculture episode is that, for good or for bad, there's there's some real issues with with raising fish in a cage, even if it's underwater. But that's that's another that was another episode. Um, I will say that for the people who think they want wild salmon and get it, 
it's going to cook much more quickly than you think it's going to based yeah. on your experience with farm-raised salmon. And it's kind of surprising. I think uh, we got from you, was it uh, Copper River salmon once? Yeah. It's wild yeah. and streaky white. Man, cooks fast, but boy, was that good fish. See, that, that's the one, uh, so there's different rivers out of Alaska, obviously, and when season starts, Copper River is usually the first one that, that starts, and they have done the best job of marketing their product. That product is probably the most expensive salmon product on the market in the world, and that they had, it has all been done through marketing. It may be no different than the Kenai River or, the, or the, uh, any other river in, in Alaska, but Copper River has done a, a tremendous job in, in marketing their product, and they're the first out of the gate, so they... And it's right at Mother's Day, too. They always open up. So it's always, you know, optimal timing for them. Good for them. Yeah, makes, right, right. Makes work it's, if you can get it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's driven. You and I are market people. You know I mean? It's, it's yeah. driven by what, what they can do. If they can't get the price, and they'll, you know, it'll, it'll settle itself. Sure enough. Uh, let's move a little bit into government regulation. Now, let's start on the retail side. And we're, we have several options places to talk about regulations on the retail side what are this is not <laughs> quickly how are you regulated as far as what the customer would see coming in the store what's what is what's the regulation there this is such a broad question i don't know how to narrow it down um when they come in what do they do they see the regulation is there something there that's there to protect them that they would notice um, I don't know that they would actually notice anything. I mean, there's there's general cleanliness, you know, good manufacturing practices that you hope the customer recognizes. You hope that a fish market smells clean and fresh. And um, you know, we're 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 regulated and, and uh, inspected by the Federal uh, Food and Drug Administration, also by the state of Florida. And then we also invite a third party to come in every year to to regulate us and. They're looking for labels on things. They're looking for, um, you know, there's certain things they watch out for particularly. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know that the customer would actually see the, 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 the evidence of, of us being regulated outside of us just being a functional fish market without, you know, yellow or orange banners on the front saying do not enter. Well, we don't want those. That third party, no. I have mentioned before in several episodes how in in probably every state, the state inspectors are probably just overwhelmed. Now, it was the yes. case in Florida. It was the case in New Jersey. It's the case in Oregon that the inspector comes in and it's he's always looking for the door. Like, how can I get out of here? Because <laughs> I've got 55 of the places to see today. And I just got to... So you, you sort of Some look for okay the big things. Huh? Some of us are okay with that. An Some of us are okay with that. Right? But then, so we have the state coming, and, and they generally they seem to generally do a poor job, which is a whole other story. But then there is the third-party company. Now, in Tallahassee, uh, the grocery store chain Publix hired a third-party company, probably the same one you're using, which was Steratech. I, I'm not familiar with that company. We, we use the United States Department of Commerce. They had their own inspectors that were they were doc is the only industry in the government that has to, has to self-fund it they have to fund really? themselves and so all their all their butcher coat white guys white butcher coat guys that stand in meat markets and, and, and meat packing plants and all that stuff are they're paid for by those companies and so we would 
they actually happen to be the least expensive third party too. So that's why we would invite them to come in. But they satisfied our requirement by some of the corporations we deal with directly that, that required us to have a third party audit. So do you get to define the parameters for what they're looking for or no, say no. does the third, so the third party says, say it's your insurance company. They want you to have this third party inspector and they're going to say, they're going to look for these things. And then the third body comes in and checks to see that you're up to up to scratch on those items. Yeah, and it's always HACCP generated, uh, hazard analysis and critical control right. points uh, generated. It's it is absolutely 100% a HACCP um, and all the things that go along with HACCP. So right. it's, it's a lot. And 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 our and you're right about the the state inspectors actually contract with the FDA now because the FDA doesn't have enough people, the state doesn't have enough people. Our, our to put people's minds at ease in the state of Florida, those inspectors are very thorough. I spend two days with a guy and it's a, it's all every, every bit of two days going over paperwork and stuff like that. He's a very thorough inspector, which is good. I, I, I invite them. It's a learning experience. I get to, I get to, you know, show where, where we need to make improvements. I need to right. show them our processes and it's, you know, I, I, I'm not one that's big on regulation, but I'm, I'm happy to comply with, with those things that will make us a better product and make us, you know, cause us to have a better product and make us a better <laughs> industry. So, right. Well, huh. That's, it's good to know that well, one, that the HACCP is, there's not a lot of room for opinion in HACCP. <laughs> there's, there's these benchmarks and there's that. So you say that, but this guy and I, we go over things sometimes and we both look at each other and say, Hmm, I'm not quite sure. So sometimes there's some ambiguity there, but, but you're right. It's, it's a, thousand page book for just the seafood industry and there's yeah. and every industry has their own asset plan that's unique to them so well then and maybe the difference is that from a restaurant versus a retail place because you're having exposure to all the it doesn't make sense in my head but somehow it seems to make sense that all you you have this raw product versus the restaurant which is creating a finished product it seems like there's a difference. I can't identify it, but this is really, this isn't part of the show. So I don't, it's just an interesting yeah. thing to observe, but it's a curiosity. Yeah. You mentioned, I guess, either sponsoring boats. Do you actually own your own boats or you just, we have, uh, we have one boat that we own. It's kind of a dormant account right now, but the part of owning a boat is owning a, a, a a fishing individual fishing account that allows you to catch uh, a certain number of pounds and you know of, of different species right that's a whole nother as a whole nother subject but um, and we might go into that but um, then we contract with we have three other boats that we contract with that we spend that they're not obligated to us but we we are directly kind of handshake agreement that they'll sell their fish to us so okay so for for the boats, are there, does the boat need a nice machine on board? Are there regulations for, for the boats, for the captain, for the crew? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an interesting question because there's not really, um, they're not obligated to have any uh, inspectors on their boats. They have to have inspectors for mechanical things. Like, do they have life vests and, 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 and uh, a, uh, certain uh, beacons and things like that 
just safety precautions. But as far as the capture and the, the storage of fish on their vessel, that is directly a market. They are they get more money the better they keep their fish, and it's kind of interesting because that that works out really well for them and it works out really well for us. If it's if somebody's not taking care of their fish, then we'll, we won't buy their fish, and that person won't have anywhere to go with the fish. And so it's a uh, they they have certain protocols they have to abide by. Uh, one of them is gutting upon capture. All fish have to be eviscerated and and cleaned out and uh, and then stored on ice and um, with certain species, scombroid and fish that have histamines in them, that includes amberjack and wahoo and mahi and uh, tuna, those fish and some mackerels, those fish have to be kept and monitored at certain temperatures, the water temperature, how long they've been out of the water, how long before they were on ice, how long they were on the hook if they were a long line hook. Um, so there's a lot of things that I have to go over with the, with the fishermen for those specific species. But other species, they just there's there's minimal requirements, but it's in the fisherman's best interest to take care of that fish the best po- best way possible to optimize the amount of money he can get for that fish. Right. Oh, well, that makes sense. Uh, tell me a little bit about shrimp fishing. I I I think I know a few things, but probably I don't. So they they pull up this net of fish, the shrimp. So we go to the store and we see the tails. And generally they're going to be raw, but there's half of a shrimp missing. Yeah. So what's going on on the shrimp boat with half of the shrimp? Well, uh, most of the time those shrimp are brought in with the heads on and they're headed at port or they're headed on the boat as they're harvesting. It depends on how long the boat stays out. So if you have some, sometimes you have a freezer boat that'll go out for many weeks at a time and they'll, they'll stay on the water and they'll harvest and the boats are fit with the facility to be able to, grade shrimp, harvest shrimp, and then free, grade shrimp, head shrimp, and then freeze the shrimp. So they'll break it all down and freeze them right there on the boats. Sometimes they do them in big sacks. Um, they'll freeze them all bulk. Um, sometimes they get a little more deli- de- uh, more um, uh, specific about what they do on the boats. But sometimes it's just a big sack, and they bring them back into port, and they'll do it at port. But uh, boats will stay out for just a day or two at a time. We'll come back in, and they'll do all that at port. Some, some shrimp are then sold with the heads on. It just kind of depends what the market is. What, again, it's um, some markets sell shrimp better with heads on them. Other markets don't do too well with, head, with shrimp with the heads on them. Hmm. And as a chef, you know, you know the, the optimal is to have the head on it. It's the flavor. The, but, but also your customer may not want to deal with all that. <laughs> and so you kind of you have to cater to what the customer likes. I think even now, I think still people don't want the food looking back at them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. always been the main complaint with the trout with the head on. Hey, it's looking at me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's not, uh, that's at least an appreciable uh, consideration. And it seems like Americans are, are that way. Um, more ethnicities are take the product in its original form more often, it seems like. In our market, there's a, different cultures have maybe a preference of having stuff that are, are in the hole or in the round rather than having it broke down for them. Right. And um, maybe, maybe Americans just like to have it all laid out for us. I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> I'm over, maybe I'm over simple, simplifying it. Oh, I don't know. But, I think uh, there's a, there's a done for you. Uh, yeah. In, in our culture for sure. That's yeah. there's no, whatever it is, be it e-commerce yeah. or your food. 
having it yeah. done for you is a big deal, uh, yeah. including going and getting packaged in the freezer and put it in the microwave for five minutes. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So you mentioned, right? Well, you know, I, I get the point of two working parents and getting the kids, and by the time you get home, you can't have dinner at eight thirty. Yeah. So there's you. You've got to make trade offs, and there's got to be compromises, and I understand that part. So sometimes you have to do what you have to do. Uh, you made a comment about being allowed to catch, which is always kind of a funny phrase to me, which you're allowed, which the Lord's allow you. So this will blow your mind here. <laughs> this comment well, will blow your mind as a libertarian. This will, this will make you crazy. Well, it's, I get a lot of that. So yeah. I would imagine at some point there's so much regulation that one almost undoes another one. And while that kind of is interesting, uh, you're dealing with, Probably, I'm guessing state and federal regulations, and federal and, supersedes everything. But the state does have waters that they can they can kind of dictate what goes on. But you and I we, we exchanged some notes on this just recently. But the, the the state waters and the federal waters are different distances off the shore. And if you're a fisherman caught in federal waters with a state regulated fish, and it's, that's different than a federal, you have to you have to have to uh, Prove to that that law enforcement officer that that fish was caught in state waters versus federal waters. That's sometimes a tough sell. So most states have come in compliance, not compliance, but uniformity with the uh, the rules. And so that you don't see many items anymore that have one length or or open date for one species and and state regulations versus federal regulations being different. It's usually it's pretty uniform. Okay. Well. Writing legislation, this is the, it gets kind of silly quickly as far as I'm concerned. Writing legislation for the fish seems just idiotic because you're writing for something that you can't control. How, and so how do you know where are things going to be in five minutes, never mind in two weeks? So that's kind of silly. Um, there was something called, and so the, the big piece, and there may be more, but the one that kept coming up was the, when I say maybe get it wrong, Magnuson-Stevens Fishery Conservation and Management Act, which is a mouthful. Yeah. What what does that thing aim to do, and does it succeed? Well, your frustration expressed about where a fish is one week from three weeks or five weeks from now, that's exactly my frustration. Um, they're trying to manage things that you can't see. It's, it's one thing to count the population of, of humans. Try to imagine to count populations of fish that are that you know exist between 20 feet to three or 400 feet or 1,000 feet below the sea level. I mean, it's got to be that's got to be impossible. They'll send they'll send people on boats to monitor and, and inspect species, and they'll they'll put little tails you know paddle tail things on fish to try to figure out where they go and where they are, where they spawn and that kind of stuff. They have a pretty good idea. They've done a pretty good job, but, but it, you're right. There's, there's some, there's some laws that seem to trump other laws. And, and um, sometimes they just, uh, I don't know. It's, it seems like an impossible goal to try to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish. And um, there's no doubt that there's some management has to be done. I mean, it's, it's, it's only reasonable to think that there's a finite number of fish out there 
and that um, I used to think that fishermen would never fish themselves out of existence. And I have since changed my philosophy on that. Fishermen will fish themselves out of existence. There are some species that have just gone the way of the dodo bird and they've just, um, it took absolute, absolute shutting down of those species for them to come back. Now on the other side of that is that when these species come back, they create a whole nether imbalance in the environment. And, uh, you know, for instance, redfish is no longer commercially a viable species in the state of Florida because 30 years ago, they were just about fish to exist extinction. And so the state came in and said, no more commercial fishing and even recreational fishermen have to catch, they can only keep a couple and their slot, slot size limits, meaning they can only be between certain size, certain inches. And, um, but consequently, redfish are now back in abundance because there still is no commercial fishery. Recreation restrictions are still the same. And they're now eating species that, uh, that are, are, they're eating species in greater numbers, uh, for instance, blue crabs and stone crabs that are causing the depletions of those uh, uh, species. And so it's, it's just, it's hard. Management is hard. It's, it's, I don't envy those people that have to try to figure this out. There's scientists that are working on uh with with finite information and um but it's it's a necessary thing we, we, we nobody wants to see the the, the extinction of a grouper or snappers but they moved man i mean it used to be all when the, when snapper was uh when, when they put the most recent regulation and which is called the individual fishing quota when they when they initiated that that's been probably 20 years now most of snapper existed in the Gulf on the west side of the Gulf near Louisiana and Texas. Well, so fishermen over there, they got their individual fishing quotas in greater numbers over there in the eastern part of the Gulf where there weren't as many snappers. Historical catches didn't dictate that the fishermen over here needed to have as many pounds to be able to catch each year. Well, now all the fish are over here. They've since migrated over here and they're in greater numbers over here. So it's caused an imbalance in the system. Louisiana and Texas have all these pounds, and now what they do is they sit on the hill, meaning they don't go fishing, and they lease those pounds, the ability to catch those fish, the fishermen over on the east side, and they make money not even fishing. And all of this was dictated by the government randomly. Not, it wasn't randomly. They, they used a, a formula, but they, they just divvied up the whole fishery to fishermen based on historical catches by percentage. And um, if you didn't have a historical catch in a specific, a specific species, then you were, you were out of luck in your ability to future catch those species. It's, it's kind of complicated. I can explain it more clearly if you, if you want to get into this area, but management's necessary. How to do it is troubling. Well, one of the things that comes up to me is Bastia's law of unintended consequences. Yeah. And, yeah. and and the and the thing there's so a lot of the fish is going to go where the food is and then they're going so yeah there's a lot of issues is this redfish thing still from prudhomme and black and redfish is that still a problem that's probably the genesis of it yes it's amazing and the funny thing is that louisiana is, has open seasons for redfish harvest folks let's take a moment out for words from jake about his tasting anarchy podcast
Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. For for your store as a Florida store, how do the Florida regulations affect you over the, are they, and this is kind of a weird question, are they more prescient than the federal, or you said federal trumps state, but who are you really dealing with on the retail level? Yeah, at the, it's all, it's all the same. Like I said, it's, it's food management. So interestingly, the, the HACCP plan is for wholesale. There's not a HACCP plan for, for, for retail side. Retail side is all food managers. You're familiar with that. That's what you had to mm-hmm. you had to have in the kitchen. And um, so we just have the same thing. We have we have food manager training. We have, to have a, a certified food manager on premises. Or in the state of Florida, you're gonna, as long as a HACCP coordinator is on the premise, then that qualifies too. But if I'm not here or Mark's not here, then we have to have a we have to have a, a certified food manager on the premise. So and that's. Here in Oregon, it's like ten bucks on an online test. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes open book tests. So, so it's, yeah, it's it's not much. Right. It's a protocol. It's a it's a it's a step. It's not a an adventure. Now, one of the one of the complaints that I've had about I I'm I'm not I'm not opposed to the idea of regulations. I'm opposed to the idea of one size fits all regulations. So people in food, they know what the best practices are. They understand that refrigeration keeps things well. They understand that if they poison people, they're not getting customers back. There's, there's known consequences for poor customer treatment. There's known consequences for poor product handling. The same thing applies in a fish store. You keep fish on ice because it keeps fish longer. Keep fish on ice because it gives the visual to the customer that, hey, this is a place where I can feel confident and trustworthy that I'm getting something I'm going to enjoy. It won't make me sick. That's true. There are very few things. Government for knowledgeable best practices, yet we have it. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't disagree with you. I, it's a hard sell, though, to say that, uh, you know, somebody gets sick or dies from eating an oyster, that should be market enough to know not to go back to that to that particular uh, vendor. However, that's a that's a pretty, you know, um, severe consequence for that consumer. And you hope to nip some of that stuff in the bud. I, 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 le- I lean your way as far as, you know, regulations. But I do see it as necessary because I didn't jump into this and you didn't jump into the, the things you did as a chef, knowing that food is best kept at such and such temperature to such and such temperature. Those things were all learned things, learned behaviors over time or from a teacher, or from a trainer. And so I see it as necessary to have some of this stuff so that these learned things that are, that are scientific things, you know, there's some, there's some science involved in, this, in all this. There's some obvious um, uh, common sense, but um, you know, to know exact temperatures, to know exact procedures. You know, we want things stored between 30 and 40 degrees. Well, that's not something 
you know, Matt McCree was coming right off the street new when he, when he first started in a, in a fish market. You know, those are all things that I had to learn and, you know, ice directly on things is, is a much better situation than just a, a cold cooler and, you know, and preserving the life of a fish, of a dead fish. And uh, that might, that's a contradiction in terms, preserve the life of a dead fish. But anyway, to make it, to, to extend its shelf life. Right. So yeah, there's, there's, there's some need there, Dan. I, 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 I'm, I'm with you. I, but at the same time, there's, these are all things that I had to learn over time. So it's, it's a good thing. It's a good process. If there was a perfect plan, and of course there isn't, maybe, maybe the illogical or more perfect, uh, what would what would it be if there's something waiting to be found as a better system what would you think that would include that's not there now or exclude that is there hmm i haven't really ever thought about that what would be more efficient than what we do now um the the concern that you have with regulation is that you get so much into somebody having to deal with red tape all the time that you become inefficient as a business. There are there are companies that we compete with and deal with and, and are, are friends with that that take this to the level of um, they have three or four or five people on on site all the time that are walking around with clipboards watching what across the procedures that are that are going going on in their in their facility. And you might say, well, that's great, and and it could be, but. So what's the cost to the company of that? And so some of this extra regulation is, is, a, is a direct burden to the consumer because it's getting passed down. It's not like these companies are, are absorbing these costs. They're passing it down to the consumer. So all these things, is it necessary to have, you know, three or four guys in a white jacket and a hard hat with clipboards walking around all the time and, and babysitting or just having good manufacturing practices taught from the get go and, and, Examples of that from people that have been working there over time, um, you know, training people that come in and, and um, just just doing things the right way all the time and just having good practices in generally. Um, maybe somewhere in between, because I think both can be abused. And um, one one at the expense of the consumer and the other at the expense of the consumer also, because the consumer may 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 become ill or or or, you know, could be could be deadly to the consumer in some of these products. I don't know. I, I haven't really thought a whole lot about it, Dan. Well, the, the thing I, I think don't I, feel like the government's intrusive in my business, except for a couple times a year where they come in and I, and I have to set aside a day, but they're very generous in letting me still function as a business, you know, as a, as a manager and, and, and letting you, letting you do your job. But I, I set aside, I'm, I pretty much take myself out of the day to day operations when that guy comes in and I, and I'm at his disposal. Whatever he wants me to do, I, I say, um, "What I'll do whatever you want." And so, but that doesn't happen. It's not all the time. And those companies that choose to have you know monitors on on site all the time, they're playing to a, a market that may require them to do that. Maybe it's a big corporation or big hospital that wants to see that oversight and wants to have that kind of record keeping and that level of record keeping and that level of oversight in order to do business with them. And it might be, it might be um, uh, profitable for that company to have that kind of oversight because they're trying to attract the big corporate uh, restaurant or the big, the hotels, the hotel chain that wants to see that or the hospital that wants to see that. And 
we choose not to go that far because the, the market that we're seeking out doesn't require us to do that. And so, you know, to each his own. Right. Well, I think that there's, there's the point that there's going to be some people are going to get squirrely no matter what. You can't regulate enough to unscrewly the people who are determined to, to do it. Are you saying we're deviant by nature? Is that what you're saying? Perhaps. We're human. We're humans. Perhaps. Well, I mean, we're, we are an odd lot, that's for sure. Yeah. All right. No, I think so, you're right. I think you're right. There's people that are trying to get over all the time. Well, that's just someone, somebody's going to, you know, we all know that. Oh, yeah, that's him. There's one person, it's not always a guy, but there's one person who's always going to find some way to skirt something. There's going to find the shortcut around something, and we all know who that is. Yeah. And the funny thing, Dan, is a lot of those things have been, have been fixed through the years. It used to be that you thaw out an IQF product, an individually frozen product. And it might weigh five pounds, but by the time you take the ice glaze off of it, I remember, I remember thawing out an 18-pound box of, of shrimp one time. And by the time I was finished that 18-pound box of shrimp, it weighed like 12 pounds. So, so I'm, I'm losing 33% right off the bat before I even tried to sell it. Expensive and I, water. Raised, I raised cane with the guy that I bought it from. He said, oh, you didn't thaw it out properly. I'm like, and he gave me this procedure for thawing out shrimp and how you're not supposed to take all the ice off when you're weighing it up. I'm like, what? Are you nuts? And so now you have shrimp that weigh what you what you pay for. I mean, it's just just because you don't do business with that person that sold you that crap shrimp. Nope. And and then the same thing with sulfites. You know, it's common practice and it has been in the past and continues to be to add uh, sodium bisulfate or tripolysulfate, which is a preservative, which sounds fine, but it also enables the product to absorb water and up to 20 to 25% water at it. So you have a scallop that might count 20, but by the time you put, them, put it in a, you soak it, quote unquote, in a, in a bath of this tripolysulfate, it might count 15 by the time you're finished because it has an extra five, what is that, an extra 20% of water added to it. Well, what happens when you cook that, Jeff? Goes in the oh, pan. Just, you, you, gotta, you, you just get, you get a pool. Right. And so, Consequently, you just don't buy stuff from that customer, that that vendor anymore. You don't buy, it. and and also that that practice has largely been eliminated from the industry. You don't see a lot of tripolysulfate anymore. It used to be twenty years ago, everything was dipped. That's what it was called, soaked or dipped. Scallops are still done a little bit, but even then, you see the more common uh, practice of leaving things dry. That's the that's the code word from the industry is dry. If the scallop is dry, it hasn't been hasn't had any sulfites or, or, or sodium put in it. So anyway, I, I, I think the market has, has corrected some of that stuff. You're, you see that, you know, you used to have mislabeling of, pro, of fish. You know this. They yes. It used to be a big, big practice that uh, the, the thing that was, was done under the table is you mislabel fish. And so you might sell a snapper as a grouper. Well, that's a pretty safe exchange because both of those fish are premium fish. It's a, it's a fine deal either it, way. Yeah, start selling an Asian catfish as grouper, you know, yeah. and then you're then you're talking about a product that's maybe ten percent the cost of a of a fresh grouper product, and then you have then you have a scam on your hands, and people paid major bucks and fines to to fix this, and it doesn't get labeled anymore that way. There's nobody labeling Asian catfish as, as grouper anymore, and if they do, that the FDA is watching it, and um, 
their samples take, you know, taken all the time. We get product held up in Miami or wherever major ports are in the United States. We get held up all the time in port because the FDA is taking samples. And um, those kind of things, those are kind of, the, the consumer needs to, that's, that's a good protection for us. Sometimes they take their sweet time releasing that product, which drives you nuts, but because by the time they release it, consumer anymore. So you're like, what's the point of that? That doesn't make any sense. But, you know, government and makes sense doesn't, is not a synonymous. No, that, that, so. that's a, that doesn't exist. Anyway. Uh, you, were, you were just talking, so you, you mentioned something about scallops. You called it a 20 and then said a 15. And I think the people who don't know what scallop sizes mean, they say, wait a minute, this went backwards. So yeah. what's happening is a size 20 is smaller than a size 15. So when you add water to the thing, it's getting bigger. So instead of 20 per pound, now they're at 15 per pound. And so the same, same works with, with shrimp, though the oxy, the fun joke is we have a jumbo shrimp. How is that possible? But grading's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> another show. Yep. Uh, I want, yeah. I want to ask you a rather polarizing question. Uh, I just want you to be aware. Does recreational fishing cause more damage than commercial fishing or is it different damage? Yeah, that's, that's interesting because that's, that's probably as polarizing. And I have this conversation with a friend of mine at church all the time. And I'll, I'll drop on the chalkboard at church. I'll say, look, here are the stats, you know, and I'll show him he's a big recreational fisherman and he thinks the commercial fishing industry is the one that does the damage. But, um, so here's, here's the thing from a commercial fishing, I'm a commercial fisherman or, or proponent of commercial fishing because it feeds more people. And uh, I, I am a, uh, I'm going to come down on the side of the commercial fishing does is safer to the environment and safer to the industry than, than recreational fishermen. Here's a, here is the way a commercial fisherman paints the typical recreational fisherman. So in, in the state of Florida, there's a 10 day red snapper season. Um, sometimes it's a 30 day. It depends on, you know, the, the, how much was caught the year before. And once again, how do you measure how much a recreational fisherman catches? Because there's no, there's no monitoring on those vessels. Every commercial fishing vessel that goes out and catches a certain species and snappers one of them, they have to report when they leave, they have to report when they get back, and they have to report exactly how many they get. They're subject to boarding and weighing on the spot. And if they misrepresent what they catch, tremendous fines are, can be assessed. And then you, there's all kinds of things that can, entanglements that, that exist from there too. So recreational fishermen, they have to derby fish. They only get a certain number of days to go out. They're going to go out and weather that may not be uh, suitable to, to fish because they only have a certain number of days. It may include two weekends and they're going to go both those weekends, even if it's storming and there's, you know, lightning and everything. So there's the element of danger. And then there's, then there's Dan, figure this out. If you can only keep two fish at a time and you start your trip out and you catch a fish right off the bat, well, you're going to put that guy in the nice box. Well, your next fish you catch, okay, you got your two fish. We're well, not going to end the day after an hour and a half of fishing. You might want to stay out a little bit longer. So you catch another snapper. And it's bigger than the first one you caught. But the first one you caught is dead. Well, what are you going to do, Dan? You're going to throw away the, the smallest of those three snappers back into the water just because you can't show up at shore with more than your limit of two snappers. And this process goes on over and over and over to the tune that they figure out that an average recreational fisherman catches eight to 10 fish extra for the two fish that he keeps every trip. And they're not, they're not trained. They haven't been grandfathered in on the ways to preserve a fish and maintain its life. And so most of those fish that are thrown back are dead fish. 
they're not even going back into the, the population. And so you, you calculate the, the vast number of recreational fishermen across the Gulf and across the East Coast, wherever, you're, wherever the area you are fishing, easily a million fishermen. I mean, how many, there's gotta be easily a million fishermen. Oh yeah. They're, they're catching 12 pounds each, and that's a very conservative number. That's the, on their keepers. They're catching, let's say 20 pounds each. That's a huge number of fish that they're keeping each year that are that are being, and then then you calculate the five and six times that number that are being thrown back dead. If they're alive, great, but most of the time they're dead. So the damage to the fishery is done by the, the in my opinion, and just through a simple math for all the problem like that, is done by the the recreational fishermen. The commercial fishermen is has so much uh, oversight that there's just um, is there. Are there is there illegal fish catch caught by the, the commercial fishermen? Obviously, you know there, there's commercial fishermen getting away with with catching more than they say they caught, but um, much more risk for them as well. They, there's a lot more risk. So I think I remember, and you can clarify this point. Maybe they changed it. There was I never read the law, but in in all the times I spent fishing in ten thousand islands, never once. Saw anybody from the state checking fishermen, never once. Commercial but, or recreational? Recreational. Uh, so, but we knew that we had limits, and we—if you—if you're going to go for snook, you—it better be it better be the right size, or woe on to you if you get caught with a snook out of size. We heard stories that you lost your you lost your license and your fishing pole, and if the snook's in the car, you lost your car. Now that might be urban myth. I'm not sure if that's true, but they were. The point was made that the state of Florida was very serious about recreational fishermen not taking what they're not allowed to take. Is that if you're caught with something that you're not allowed to have, is it is is the serious is the fine serious? Yes, it can be, but it's much less egregious egregious for a recreational fisherman than it is a commercial fisherman. Commercial fisherman stands to lose his license, his very ability to work if he if he loses, if he uh, comes in with, with the wrong amount of fish. Well, that's a so, big price to pay. Yeah, and once again, it, it becomes a numbers problem too, Dan. If you have, you know, how, how many recreational fishermen are there in Florida? Probably 100,000 probably, that would be a very conservative estimate across the Gulf Coast. And, uh, they certainly don't have enough, you know, game wardens to to, to, to manage that. No, but so, I mean, it's it's also from the recreational fishermen. A matter of it's it's, it's risk assessment. Yeah, it is life. life do I want not? Do I want to be out of compliance? And because you know we all think the same way. If I have the thing I'm not supposed to have, I'm going to be the guy that gets caught. Right. Right. So that's just, that's, that's how that goes. So, all right. Um, I want to ask you a couple of different short answer questions, which have almost nothing to do with fishing, but that might be what you say. Of the five flavors, wheat, salty, bitter, sour, or umami, which one's your favorite? Sweet. What's your favorite food? Favorite food? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a, I'm a, sweet tooth so it's it's got to be chocolate or something along those lines real food no it's that's fine okay what's your favorite real food 
oh, I, I'm a sucker for a fried piece of fish or a fried, you know, uh, I, I've teased here recently with some friends that the, I can go to the fanciest seafood restaurant and I'll order a fried grouper sandwich, you know, with a little bit of tartar sauce and a, and a bun and a pickle and a, you know, I'm good with that. What's your least favorite food? Um, I'm, I'm not very eclectic in my taste. I don't like mushrooms. I don't like, um, I know this is probably heresy to your ears. Probably a lot of the things that you find, the delicacies, I, I probably would not care to have. It's all right. I have no heresy when it comes to people's preferences. Oh. What gets you excited? In this industry? Or just generally in life? Generally in life. Oh, it's got to be family related. It's, fa it's family related. Good things in the family gets me excited. And what about the Accomplish industry? Accomplishments by my, kin my kids is probably the, the coolest thing for me. That's a good answer. And industry-wise? Just, just a good hard-fought day that, uh, that everybody comes out unscathed, but you, you really nailed it that day, right? Yeah. You know, a, a good service where everybody's, everybody's good and it was a good team effort and rather than a, a fuss contest the whole day. Everybody came in with 10, everybody leaves with 10. Yeah, right. What turns you off? Um, absence of uh, listening to other viewpoints, you know, shutting down on conversation, inability to converse about things that are maybe delicate. What sound do you love? Sound. Once again, it had to be something associated with my kids or my wife, you know, my wife call my name or something like that. And not, and not in a bad way. <laughs> What's not sound, yelling my name. Yeah. What sound do you hate? And maybe you just answered that. Right. Uh, this is my boys fighting right now. I got, I got a 13 year old and a 15 year old. Oh my gosh. They're the last two at home too. And it's brutal. Stop. Stop. Anyway, you know, <laughs> I do. I yeah. do. Girls, what's your favorite food indulgence? Um, I, I don't, probably this is going to be her heretical for me to say this. Uh, probably a good piece of beef, you know, a really good piece of really good steak cooked just properly. It just, it's really, I guess I've been spoiled with a lot of good, really good seafood. So when I have a really good steak, it's a little bit different than what, I, what I'm used to. So I'm spoiled. I'm definitely spoiled. My kids are all spoiled. My kids have had things they should not have had at their ages when they should have, they, they should not have eaten some of the things they've eaten at their ages. They should have had to pay for some of the things they've had to eat. They've, got, they've gotten to eat. But uh, yeah, good, a good solid, you know, steak. I'm, I'm happy. My, my kids, it's, we, we've had conversations like that before that my, my children have, my, my daughter, eight, nine, almost nine, has rolled her own pasta to make her own raviolis. She's mixed her own pasta to roll her own pasta to make her own raviolis. I'm thinking, you know, there aren't a lot of nine-year-olds that do that. There are yeah. a lot of nine-year-olds that can make a cake on her own and, and bake it and see it through. So I, in some way, I understand your, your comment that there's, but, you know, maybe, you need to enter her in the junior master chef. She probably she probably do well on that show. Uh, she's got a, she's she has more to do, but she she would like the idea. Yeah, but that's cool though. That's got to be gratifying. It is. It's it her is. Passions are hers. Yeah, I like it. It's yeah. You know, nine nine's a fickle age because you know it's Dory. Oh look, something shiny. So we're right. off. Right. <laughs> something else, but that's how it goes. 
Uh, I think the store has a Facebook page. Is there is that a way for people to find Southern Seafood? And you know what? We didn't actually even talk about the store. So what's the name of the store? Southern Seafood Market. We're located in Tallahassee, Florida. And the uh, Facebook page is Southern Seafood Market. And, and the website is southernseafoodmarket.com. So thanks, Dan. That, that's great. You're welcome. Now, I, I think I know that shipping isn't your prime business model. Maybe not your business model at all. Is there... Is this part of your business though that I don't know about? Yeah, it actually, yeah, we've, we've gotten into it more and more over the years um, as rates have come down because it's uh, more plentiful or it's easier to get stuff uh, shipped. It's uh, the routes are better and it's a little less expensive. We, we, we focus on regional because it's a, it's a lot less expensive. We can use certain uh, ground rates that are have next day service. The, the, the trick in the shipping is that is you need to get it there within one or two days for obvious reasons. So, and certain distances just make this, make the shipping costs just exorbitant. So anyway, yes, we do like to ship. We ship anywhere that FedEx goes. And are you fish, are you shipping fresh fish or frozen fish? Whatever the customer wants, but we primarily do fresh, fresh fish. Yeah. Fresh fish and shrimp. Yeah. Yeah. You have, that was in New Jersey. You know, it's been since I left Tallahassee that I've had a piece of scamp. Really? And I still tell anybody who listen, best group you'll find is the piece of, if you can find it. It's like uh, the fishermen in Lake Michigan who get the whitefish, they keep uh-huh. the livers for themselves. And there's a good reason for that. Whitefish liver turns out to be amazing. Yeah. You can't get them because they hoard yeah. them. It's not even on the market probably. Almost not at all. You have to know somebody to get one. And if yeah. you're lucky enough, there's, a certain, there's certain commodities like that in our industry as well. Yeah. So to me, scamp was one of them. My God, I love that thing. It's just, to me, it's the best fish out of the Gulf. But that's my own opinion. Who might surprise you here one day? <laughs> I, like, I like good surprises. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. It's, I, can, I can hear some the ice machine in the back. So. Yeah, it's a good day in the store. Yeah. It was a good day. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate your time and have a good rest of the week. And uh, and while it's still today, happy Mardi Gras. Yeah, right. Yeah, Fat Tuesday for a few more hours. Go to Publix and get yourself some punchki. Yeah, some king cake. Add that too. Yeah. All right, Dan. Thank you so much. All right, you're welcome. All right, folks, that's going to do it. As I mentioned, Matt's store, Southern Seafood, will be linked on the show notes page to both his webpage and the store's Facebook page. If you like smoked fish dip, if you've never had it but want to try it, you can't do better than his. I get nothing from mentioning that except the satisfaction that you are getting an excellent product. Matt and I mentioned our kids and some of the experiences they've had. You've heard me mention my daughter's baking. The ravioli she made was from her Christmas subscription to Radish, which is a monthly cooking kit subscription just for kids. They'll learn to make and bake from scratch. Those skills build your child's confidence in the kitchen and open their willingness to try new things. Maybe. Use the Radish banner on the show notes page or visit culinarylibertarian.com slash R-A-D-D-I-S-H-K-I-D-S to find out more and join the Radish subscription service.
please do share this episode on your social media feeds. And when you see it, give it a like. And also, rate and review the show on your favorite podcatcher, be it Apple Podcasts or whatever you've got. Thank you very much for listening. I appreciate support. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.